we've got to ask ourselves, where are the major emphases? Mm. And you will notice the days are not mentioned in the New Testament. What is mentioned, though, is this. That the repeated emphasis in Genesis 1, and God said, and God said, becomes the major thrust of almost every single statement about creation in the whole of Scripture. Mm. By faith we understand that the worlds were made by the word of God. In the beginning was the word, all things were made by him, and so on. And I conclude from that that the major thing is this. That whatever the details of the timing were, that the processes of creation were not, are not to be explained by purely naturalistic causes, for the very simple reason that God was speaking. Alright, so I finally got time to continue the series I was doing a long time ago about tracking those inspirations, those influences that changed my mind about how I read the book of Genesis. The first video I did, which I will link below, was on two talks. One, a response from John Piper, and then two, um, a response during a Q&A that Tim Mackey did on reading Genesis not as a literal formulation of seven-day creationism and Piper taking a view or seeing a a view that could be taken as an old earth view. <clears throat> and what I attempted to describe there was how these initial videos, the initial impact of these thinkers of this different way of taking the text or really began to shake how, how I had grown up with it, just taking it on its face as a literal description of accounts. I was not exposed to the literary nature of, of the accounts. And so the second video, or I should say the third video here that I'm going to react to <clears throat> that changed my mind on Genesis is from a Q&A um, that John Lennox did. And he just goes through the story and he asks some questions about the text. And he sets up the main dichotomy here in the beginning between those who take it as literal and those who take it as a story or as something that's more uh, that's more literary, something that's not uh, something that's not explicitly talking about the scientific nature of creation. And so, I just want to watch this video with you guys and give you some thoughts, give you some things that roll through my head as I rewatch it and try and reflect back on when I first saw this video, what this meant to me, and how this began to change my mind. So, let's get started here. Well, now Genesis 1. What are we to do, Michael? Shall I give the short answer? God created the world in six seconds. <laughs> <laughs> give the short answer. Six seconds. <laughs> The question of Genesis 1 is a question that has disturbed many Christians, and I'm going to have to be very rapid here. But what is very important is this. I observe that among people who are fully convinced, as I am, of the inspiration of Scripture, there are several different views. 
They range from. So this comment right here is very key. Those who believe in the inspiration of Scripture have very different views on how to take the creation story. And I don't know if I realized this at the time, but this kind of set me free in some sense. And the fact that I can still take the Bible seriously and not have to take everything in it literally or interpret it all in the same fashion. So do not let us think little of what John Lennox has just told us, that those who take the inspiration of the Bible seriously can have very different views on creation. The young earth view, a recent earth creation, that the days of Genesis are six literal days of one earth week. That's on the one end of the spectrum. The opposite end of the spectrum is to point out that in Hebrew writing, you often get literary forms used. And the, th the second three days balance the first three days in a pattern that can roughly be represented as, for example, in the book by Henri Blocher, as form and fullness. God creates the sky, he fills it with birds, he creates the earth, and so on. So that, that those are the two extreme poles of the spectrum. Now, what I notice, ladies and gentlemen, is this. Okay, so he's, he's set up the large dichotomies in those that take the inspiration of the Bible seriously as those who take it as literal, the earth is very young, the earth was created in six 24-hour days, or those that take it as a completely literary, re, literary telling or literary representation of creation, something that isn't talking about the scientific nature of the earth, but something that is talking about in this poetic form, in this literary form, the form, and then the filling, the three, and then the three, the first three days, the second three days. And you see this poetic, we'll see this come back in a couple more videos here, uh, as we as we discussed the Bema podcast with Marty Solomon, because he was my culmination of this view, just to spoil and foreshadow a little bit of this. But Lennox is seeing this; he knows that it's there. Let's well, let's continue. Among people who believe in the complete inspiration of Scripture, there are no real divergences on the resurrection of the cross. Oh, all right, all right. So what I want, okay. And this, this hangs up a lot of people. This hangs up a lot of people, so I'm going to rewind it. you got to hear that again. Divergences on the rest. Even the complete, ladies and gentlemen, is this. Among people who believe in the complete inspiration of Scripture, there are no real divergences on the resurrection of the cross. Okay. So he's, he's reminding us something very, very important. We're going to take the Bible seriously. We're going to take it as inspired by God. Then we're going to have to agree on some essentials. And the main essential for us Christians is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And for those of us that may interpret Genesis differently are not going to interpret the resurrection of Jesus differently. Or take that as real historical. As something that changes the world. Because we have to. Otherwise you're not a Christian. But just because you might have a different interpretation of how to take Genesis, if we share the same view of Jesus Christ or the resurrection, it doesn't mean you're out. OK, 
Okay, it doesn't mean you're out, and it doesn't mean you don't take every don't take certain things in the Bible literally or historically either. As I like to say, we're just talking about different genres here, but I'm tipping my hat a little bit more. Let's continue. So what I want to say to you now are two things. One, I believe all that Scripture says about this topic with all my heart. But I'm prepared to admit that I don't necessarily understand it all. And when I see equally godly people having different views, I know that here's an area where it would be very unwise to be dogmatic. Mm -hmm. And secondly, it would be scandalous to fight my fellow Christians about it and make it a test of orthodoxy, which looks absurd to the world outside that's not remotely interested in it. Okay. Sorry. I'm pausing way more than I thought I would here, but this is, he's dropping such gems, such wisdom here. And I'm making, uh, keep in mind, I'm making the series not to make a litmus test for those in the comments in your, the reality of your biblical education or your biblical literacy or anything like that. Or for the, let's say, fullness or maturity of your faith. What I'm attempting to do here, what my goal in making these videos is in, in showing you the pieces of content that changed my mind as a series, it's called It's Changed My Mind About Genesis, is to, sh is to show you the steps of a transformation, the steps of a conversion in some sense. I'm not trying to make you take my point of view, or I'm not trying to make you, mold you into this image of me. What I simply want to do is show you what happened to me. Expose you to some things that I believe to be real, to be, to be true about the biblical text. But again, as long as we are agreeing upon the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then you're a Christian. You're my brother, you're my sister. I'm not here to argue. I'm just I just want to show you, okay? And I want to have humility. And as he just pointed out, we need humility. My problem, and I don't and I, I have to be honest about this. Let's listen to what he just what he just said, okay? And then I want to I want to share with you a little story. All right. Endless to fight my fellow Christian, and where it would be very unwise to be dogmatic. And secondly, it would be scandalous to fight my fellow Christians about it, and make it a test of orthodoxy, which looks absurd to the world outside that's not remotely interested in it. Okay. When us Christians fight about this especially around other non-Christians, it looks absurd to them. And I'll tell you a story. I was, I was away for a weekend with some friends, and we were having a discussion. And one of our friends there wasn't a Christian. And he begins to ask us, a, gr a group of us, there was three or four of us who were, he begins to ask us about, about, um, about, our views about the Bible, about truth, about about what we believe. 
And me and me and my other friend were were trying to keep it steered towards some essentials, right? Resurrection of Jesus being one of those things. Following Jesus. What it means to take the Bible seriously, as we're discussing in this series. And we had a friend, another friend who was there, who was also a Christian, who wholeheartedly accepts the resurrection of Jesus. And we started talking about Adam and Eve, about Genesis, about the flood. And me and my me and my one friend were trying to give him more of a literary, more of a story view of these things, more of what, what these stories are saying to us, what they're trying to communicate. And our other friend is getting caught in talking about the physical realities of these things, about the physical concordism, something we'll talk about in another video, the, the fact that he wants to take these stories as, um, as comments on what happens in the physical world and taking them as scientific truth. And our other friend, who's not a Christian, is getting real hung up on this. He's saying, so what do you do about the fossils? What do you do about carbon dating? What do you do about... And my one friend is a young earth creationist. He's like, no, 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 but the earth is this old, and because of water pressure and, and all these things. And me and my other friend are like, dude, you're getting, you're getting, he kept saying, can we pause, can we pause, can we pause? Because we need to skip. This is a good inter intramural faith debate that we can have together as Christians, because we both are taking, as Linux is pointing out to us, we're both taking the Bible seriously. We both want to comprehend what it says, and we both want to understand it. But to our friend here, who doesn't believe in the inspiration of the Bible, who is unsure about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our debate about the literality of Genesis is, liter is, getting, is literally getting in his way to having a real discussion about the essentials of the Christian faith. And it was one of the most frustrating conversations I've ever had in my life. Because my friend, who was... And I, and I understand this. We'll talk about this more in another video. I promise you. There's another. There's a Peterson clip that I'm, I'm, I have to make a part of the series. But, and we'll, we'll talk about, I'll mention this story again there. My point in bringing this up is, when we as Christians have these fiery debates about how to take creation and Genesis, whether literal or literary, in front of non-Christians, we are getting in the way of other, of other people taking the Bible seriously, and taking Jesus seriously. So in some sense, these videos aren't for non-Christians. If you're a non-Christian, I thank you very much for watching, and I'm very curious what you have to say. You can email me, you can comment below, you can, you can, we can talk, we can have a discussion. And I'm not out here to make my seven-day, six-day creationist friends angry either. Again, I'm just trying to give you a... a a transformation story in my thinking, trying to trying to lead you through the logic of how why I changed my mind about how I read Genesis. But this debate, this thing I'm doing, yes, I'm posting on a public platform, yes, it's on YouTube, yes, anyone can watch it. But in all reality, this this video is not really for non-Christians. Again, I'm happy for watching. I'm very curious what you think. But I'm not trying to get in your way of how you take the Bible, of of believing in Jesus, of of reading it of seeing the truth in it. But I want to remind us Christians that, that having these debates in front of non-Christians, when they are 
and this is the key, when they are being very curious about what we believe, let us not get in our own way. Let's leave this conversation for another time. And if they really want to ask about it, if they really want to have this debate, let us be well-versed enough to give both sides. That's why I'm taking you through this transformation, because we're going to talk about some of the different sides, some of the reasons I disagree with what I used to agree with. But I just want to make this point and tell the story. And I don't tell the story to paint myself as any kind of hero. There are many things I wish I could have said in that conversation, some things I wish I did say that I didn't say. But I, I bring it up to say that having this debate, especially in person, in front of non-Christians, when they are asking different questions, isn't, isn't being helpful. So let us have humility to understand who's around and who's listening. That's all I gotta say. It is a terrible thing when Christians come from reading Genesis and they're fighting one another. No need to do that. And whatever view you believe, let's discuss it. It's important. We must take Scripture seriously as an in-house discussion. Right. But there's far too much dirty linen hanging up there in public. Right. Which, of course, just cuts the ears off people. Right. You can see it. And when you see that happening, you've got to ask yourself a very serious question. I will not compromise the resurrection, hmm. even if people think it's absurd. Right. Is Genesis 1 like that? Is a particular interpretation of Genesis 1 like that? Some people think yes, no. some people think no. It's not. We can't afford to get it wrong in the direction that cuts people's ears off. Right. Right. If there's uncertainty. Now that's my first point. So let's try and proceed in grace. I'm saying that because you might want to use those bullets <laughs> on me by the time I've finished in a couple of minutes. Now, how do I approach the question? The first point to make is the one that Ravi made very forcibly two days ago. He said, let's not confuse the fact of creation with the timing of creation. At mm. least that's my formulation of it. We've got to ask ourselves, where are the major emphases? Mm. And you will notice the days are not mentioned in the New Testament. What is mentioned, though, is this. That the repeated emphasis in Genesis 1, and God said, and God said, becomes the major thrust of almost every single statement about creation in the whole of Scripture. Mm. By faith we understand that the worlds were made by the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, all things were made by Him, and so on. And I conclude from that that the major thing is this. That whatever the details of the timing were, that the processes of creation were not, are not to be explained by purely naturalistic causes for the very simple reason that God was speaking. Amen. The fascinating thing, of course, about Genesis 1 is that God didn't create everything at once, did he? Have you ever thought about that? And that, no matter what you believe about the days, ladies and gentlemen, no matter how long you think they were or how short, God did not create everything at once. Mm. That's very striking. 
And one of my contentions is we are so familiar, we think, with the text of Genesis 1 that we rush to conclusions that perhaps are not completely warranted. What is the major emphasis? That there is a creator. One. That there is a beginning to space-time. Two. Mm -hmm. Which is, of course, something of major predictive value, but that could lead us into a very big discussion. Three. That the creator is personal, not a mere force. Look at the verbs in the chapter. Mm. Four, that there is a but sequence us. of steps. Well, when you see a sequence, whatever the sequence is, you ask, where is it going? And clearly it's going to human beings who alone of all created things are made in the image of God. The universe isn't. Mm. It shows its glory. It's not made in his image. Only you are. And that, of course, makes human beings utterly unique. Mm. And we need to be careful of that in our expositions, don't we? Mm. Because that is a fundamental biblical axiom. Amen. But now, I don't know how this video is going to turn out, but <clears throat> see, I'm getting emotional right now because I'm working on I'm working on a different video, an essay, and uh, what I'm attempting to do in this essay is to convince myself and to convince you, maybe it's divine providence that I'm doing this, restarting the series now. I think that this, I hope, that what he's talking about here sets some of you free. Gives you a Christian worldview. Because I'm finding that I don't have one. And that'll come out in this essay that I'm making. But what? Okay, we got. We have to go back a little bit. I have to go back a little bit, and I gotta explain, explain why, why I'm I'm reacting this way. Being of creation, at least that's my formulation of it. We've got to ask ourselves where are the major emphases? Okay, and many people, the major emphases, and I might I might just have to package this video with the Peterson video, and do them both in one. Uh, but the major emphasis here, let's pay attention because what happened in that instance with my friend and us trying to, and him asking questions, us trying to minister was that he was my friend and the other one who we were talking to, he was getting stuck on the physical properties of the world being what defines the creation. And I don't think that's what Genesis is talking about. Yes, it's about creation, but I think the reason I get so frustrated about this is because there's something else going on here. It's not just talking to us about the physical nature of the world. It's telling us something greater than that. 
And if you're a Christian and you believe in the resurrection, you already believe that there's something greater in the world than just the material. So then to confine the material, or sorry, to then to confine creation to an account of the material world as a scientist would, is to do it as a scientist, as an atheist, as an atheistic scientist, not as a Christian. And you will notice the days are not mentioned in the New Testament. What is mentioned, though, is this. That the repeated emphasis in Genesis 1, and God said, and God said, becomes the major thrust of almost every single statement about creation in the whole of Scripture. By faith we understand that the worlds were made by the word of God. In the beginning was the word, all things were made by him, and so on. And I conclude from that that the major thing is this. That whatever the details of the timing were, that the processes of creation were not, are not to be explained by purely naturalistic causes for the very simple reason that God was speaking. Okay, this is so... I'm going to have to open up two tabs. We're going to have to do it this way. What did what did John Lennox just tell us? What did he just tell us? The fascinating thing, God is emphasis in Genesis mentioned, though, is this. That the repeated emphasis in Genesis 1, and God said, and God said, becomes the major thrust of almost every single statement about creation in the whole of Scripture. By faith we understand that the worlds were made by the word of God. In the beginning was the word, all things were made by him, and so on. And I conclude from that that the major thing is this. That whatever the details of the timing were, that the processes of creation were not, are not to be explained by purely naturalistic Causes for the very simple reason that God was speaking. Okay, they're not to be. Let's hear that phrase again. Naturalistic causes are not to be explained by purely naturalistic causes for the very simple reason that God was speaking. Okay, so there's something outside of nature that is speaking the creation into being. That's what you're believing if you're a Christian. So then to make the creation purely about the physical qualities of the creation and the physical coming about of that creation is to treat it not as a Christian. Do we, under do we understand what, what was just said? And this is the problem that I have with a lot of people when we start to have this conversation, is that whenever I stray away from, I'm going to pick on them a little bit just because I know enough of them in my own life, this isn't every one of them, but I I will talk to people who are strict six day creationists. You know the Earth is six thousand years old. And the moment I start to stray away from it to say some theological statements about Genesis, they'll come and say to me what he was pointing out in the beginning. Oh well, if you don't take this literally, what how, how does this affect the rest of how you take the Bible? 
Well, no, we agree on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, so we can have this debate. So it's not calling into question the validity of my faith and the truthfulness of Scripture, let's say. But then people outside the faith trip up on this because, as was happening with my friend, when he was talking to our other friend who wasn't a Christian, it was all about, yeah, but the physical world this, the physical world that, the physical process is this. According to Scripture, uh, anti-science, or anti, you know, the secular scientific belief. And so, that's the problem that he was describing in the beginning, is that you have the seven-day creationist who are saying, you know, this is what it's saying about creation, and you have the atheistic, what Pierce is about to tell us about, you have the atheistic scientists who are then saying, no, 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 those are scientific facts, they're just wrong. These are the actual scientific facts. When Linux is saying, no, 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 you cannot talk about the creation purely from the physical perspective because the emphasis in the whole of Scripture is that God was speaking, God was doing, God was making. Something that's outside of creation is doing the creating. That's an essential claim in the Christian worldview. So I think there's many of us, myself included, who affirm the truthfulness of the Bible, but then act as if the only thing, and this is coming across in this essay that I'm making, the only thing that matters is the physical reality, the physical world, these objects. And that's not a Christian worldview. All right. All right, so let's go to Peterson. It's one of my favorite clips from a class of his. I've played this before on the podcast. I think that fundamentalists and atheistic scientists have the same problem. The fundamentalists, so we could say the Christian fundamentalists in the U.S., make the proposition that... Again, Linux is talking about that creation for a Christian cannot be purely explained through physical processes. Biblical stories, we'll call them mythological stories, are literal representations of the truth. But, and that might be true depending on what you mean by literal. But what they mean by literal, or what they attempt to make literal mean, is that they're in the same category as scientific facts. Because they don't have the idea that there are different ways of approaching truth, and that, and that truths can serve different purposes. They don't have a sense that your definition of truth is actually something like a tool rather than an ontological statement about the reality of the world. And so the, the fundamentalists basically make the proposition that the idea that God created the world in six days, 5,000 years ago, is literally true. And they get the 5,000 year estimate, by the way, by going through the genealogies in the Old Testament and adding up the hypothetical ages and figuring out, you know, how long before Moses, Adam lived. And some bishop did that back in the, I think it was in the, mid-1800s, I might be wrong about that, but it was somewhere back about that time. And more or less that's been accepted as canonical fact ever since. And then the scientists say, well yeah, those are empirical truths, they're just wrong. See, and that's the only difference there is between the fundamentalists and the atheist scientists. The fundamentalists say, those are fundamental scientific truths, and they're right, and the scientists say, well they're scientific truths, they just happen to be wrong. This is Ken Ham, by the way. This is... Well, yeah, it's saying scientific things about the physical world. And that, in, in this dichotomy Peterson's bringing up for us, is what is happening. 
the the fundamentalist seven day creationists are saying, no, 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 this is the reality about the the coming about of the physical world, what the matter tells us. And the atheistic scientists are saying, no, 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 we're both arguing about the coming about of the physical world, the matter of the earth. It's just that you're wrong about what constitutes the reality of the physical matter. But as Linux is pointing out, that's not a major emphasis in the biblical story. The emphasis is God said, God created, God made. You're already positing something that's outside of the material world that creates the material world. So then you cannot, in a proper Christian worldview, then say that the only thing that matters about the creation story is what the physical world then tells us about it coming about its coming about, about its creation, about its about its upbringing, about its growth, right? This is the problem. That they have, if you're, we're fighting this battle about what constitutes real meaning, real meaning the physical world, this is physical concretism. This is that the Bible is making propositional truths about the physical world, and as long as we can cohere what the Bible says to the material, to matter, then that's what's true. And Peterson is saying, well, hang on a second, because you're only using true in one in one sense. You're only saying it's true in the sense of it communicates something to us about physical properties. Well, I think that's a stupid argument, personally. I mean, for a bunch of reasons. One is that the people who wrote the, the ancient stories that we have access to were in no sh way, shape, or form scientists. You know, modern people tend to think that you think like a scientist, and people have always thought that way. First of all, you do not think like a scientist. Even scientists hardly even think like scientists. But if you're not scientifically trained, you don't think like a scientist at all. So one of the things, for example, that characterizes your thinking is confirmation bias. And so if you have a theory, what you do is wander around in the world looking for reasons why it's true. And a scientist does exactly the opposite of that in the little tiny narrow domain where he or she is actually capable of being a scientist. And what they have is a theory and look for a way to prove it wrong. But believe me, you don't run around doing that. I mean, you, you can train yourself so now and then you can do that. You know, you can learn to listen to people, for example, on the off chance that you might be wrong. But that is by no means a natural way of thinking. And of course, the, the, the fundamental philosophical axioms of the scientific method weren't developed until Descartes and Bacon and who else? Descartes, Bacon. There's one more. Anyways, the name escapes me at the moment. But you can argue about when science emerged, but you, you, <laughs> it certainly emerged in its articulated form within the last thousand years. I think you could say even more specifically that it emerged in the last 500 years. Now, you might argue with that and say, well, what about the Greeks and other people who were fairly technologically sophisticated or who invented geometry or that kind of thing? But yeah, yeah. Bare precursors to the idea of empirical observation. Aristotle, for example, when he was writing down his knowledge of the world, it never occurred to him to actually go out in the world and look at it to see if what he assumed about it was true. And it certainly never occurred to Aristotle to get 20 people to go look at the same thing independently, write down exactly how they went about doing it, compare the records, and then extract out what was common. 
mean, that's a that seems self-evident to us to some degree, but you know, it was by no means self-evident to anyone 500 years ago, and people still don't do it. So it's not even it's not plausible. If you know anything about the history of ideas, it's not plausible to posit that stories about the nature of reality that existed before 500 years ago were scientific in any but the most cursory of ways. So why we have that argument continually is somewhat beyond me. Part of the reason is though that everyone, fundamentalists included, really believe in scientific facts. Even though they hate it, they'll use computers, they'll fly. Right, okay. So Peterson's point here, and it's one that we should we should all think about, is the fact that, well, if you're going to take the text of Genesis as telling us about the scientific, physical nature of the world and it's, it's coming about, then you're assuming that they were doing science. And as we've said before on this podcast, that's hard to assume because... As he's saying, the views of science and scientism and scientists hasn't been around very long. So to say that these people were treating the story of the God bringing about the world as a scientist would go and investigate the physical world is just not how it would have worked. And if we're going to be people who prize the authorial intent or the original audience and they're hearing it what they would have associated with what was said about the text then to claim that it is saying something scientific doesn't correspond because they weren't scientists so again we can have different views on this i'm not saying you have to take my view and bringing up this example and pushing on this a little bit what I am saying is that if you do have that view, you have to think about why you have the view. Are you imposing a scientific view of the material world, of the thing that is to be derived from the Genesis story, is something about, mainly, let's say, about the coming of the physical world, or is it about something else? Is it about the fact that God said, that God created, something outside of the material world made the earth? And that should change our whole perspective on the world. Because in many people's minds today, matter, as he said before, to the Christian fundamentalist and the atheistic scientist, matter is the only thing that matters, and that's what they're fighting about. What brought about the matter? How did it come about? What does the matter tell us about itself? Or, in some sense, what does it tell us about God, not what is God trying to say through this story or through these things in creation? So we might come back to this, but we'll stop there for now. Let's keep going with John. The fascinating thing, of course, about Genesis 1 is that God didn't create everything at once, did he? Have you ever thought about that? And that, no matter what you believe about the days, ladies and gentlemen, no matter how long you think they were or how short, God did not create everything at once. That's very striking. And one of my contentions is, we are so familiar, we think, with the text of Genesis 1, 
that we rush to conclusions that perhaps are not completely warranted. What is the major emphasis? That there is a creator, one. That there is a beginning to space-time, two. Which is, of course, something of major predictive value, but that could lead us into a very big discussion. Three, that the creator is personal, not a mere force. Look at the verbs mm. in the chapter. Four, that there is a sequence of steps. Well, when you see a sequence, whatever the sequence is, you ask, where is it going? And clearly it's going to human beings who alone of all created things are made in the image of God. The universe isn't. It shows its glory. It's not made in his image. Only you are. And that, of course, makes human beings utterly unique. And we need to be careful of that in our expositions, don't we? Because that is a fundamental biblical axiom. Right. But now, what about the days? And here's my short answer. Well, it's not really an answer. It's just to provoke your thinking, ladies and gentlemen. Let's look at them in the sequence in which they appear. And God called the light day. That's the... Okay, let's, let's think about what he's doing here. He's not asking the question, what is this text trying to tell us about the physical matter? He's asking, what is the text, what is the sequencing of this, as he talked about? God didn't create it all at one time. That's one of the basic things we can take away from Genesis 1, no matter your view on the time of creation. What does the sequence tell us? Is there a coherence to how the text lays out the story? And he's going to provoke questions just at a very surface level reading. Very surface level reading, not imposing mythology, not imposing science on the text. Just, what is, what is this, what does the sequence tell us? Because there's a sequence to this, like there's a sequence to a song, like there's a sequence to a novel, like there's a sequence to your life, like there's a sequence to events that happen. And does the sequence tell us anything? The first mention of the word Yom in Genesis 1. And the darkness he called night. How long is that, do you think? God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. Curious, why did God use new words when he'd already got some? At the equator, how long would that be? I'm not trying to catch you, I'm just asking you to respond to the text. <laughs> how long? Twelve hours, that's right. So the first day of Genesis is not a 24-hour day, ladies and gentlemen. It's not. It's less than 24 hours. Have you ever heard a talk in Genesis 1 that says the days are less than 24 hours? Well, you see. That's what I said. Day to night, 12 hours. <laughs> you see, the first use of the word day is less than 24 hours. It calls attention to a linguistic ambiguity that exists in many languages. That we use the word day multivalently for several different meanings. And it's causing, calling immediate attention to that. 
So that means we need to be careful. This is sophisticated writing. Example number two. And there was evening and morning one day. How long's that? 24 hours. That's the normal Hebrew expression, evening and morning for a day. Very good. Now number three. And God rested on the seventh day. No phrase, and there was evening and morning, day seven. How long did God rest from creation for, ladies and gentlemen? When did he start creating again? Do you think? He didn't. Oh, so at least one person here believes in a very long day then. <laughs> again, let's, let's, let's think about what he's doing here. What Lennox is doing here is he's, he's saying, if you just take the text at a very literal, basic level and think about the days of the creation, it's a little more complicated than just creation happened in six days. Okay. He didn't, did he? Yes, he rested from creation. We need to take this very seriously. The doctrine of Shabbat raises a vast theological question. And that is, how do we understand creation? Is it like Thomas Aquinas and Aristotle? Simply saying, and God caused it to exist, it certainly means that. Mm. Or is it telling us that there are two kinds of processes involved? First, the creation processes, and God said, and God said. And that sequence stops, and it never started again. So it seems to me, at least arguable, ladies and gentlemen, I wouldn't die for it, although you may want me to. I certainly wouldn't die for it that the seventh day has not ended. In fact, I meet many serious theologians who point out that the absence of that and there was evening and morning is indicated. Now, ladies and gentlemen, just anticipate the objections because we'll have to stop when I stop because I'm going to run out, you see. Some people say that won't do, you see, because in the law it says in six days God made the heaven and the earth be rested. And so we have the earth week. Yes, we do. But ladies and gentlemen, I would love it to be like that. I would love to be able to draw straight lines from Genesis 1 to the earth week, because then you'd work for six days and you'd retire. <laughs> I mean, it's logical, isn't it? If we were to do what God did, that shows us that we're in the realm of thought models. Mm. That the sequence of creation in Genesis 1 becomes a thought model for the repeated earth week. Genesis 1 was right. never repeated. And so to draw straight lines is going beyond a little bit, okay? But I haven't finished. There's a fourth use of the word day, which you mightn't have noticed if you were reading English. It's in chapter 2, verse 4. And it says there, when the heavens and the earth were created, the word when is used in English, most versions, but in Hebrew it's in the day when. But it's translated when. Because if I, I were to say when in the day, well, which day was that? The first, the second, all six? No, it's when. 
Let me give you an illustration of it. In my, in my young day, when I was at Cambridge, you had to have all women out of the rooms at 10 o'clock at night and be in your room at 11. And you say to me, well, was that Tuesday? Well, of course not. It's my <laughs> young day. What day am I talking about? The word day in many languages also is used to convey the notion of an indefinite period of time in the past. There are four uses of one word in the first hundred words of the Bible. That is telling me that this is immensely sophisticated writing, ladies and gentlemen. I take it very seriously, as you see. Instead of making up my mind in advance what it means, I ask the text, what is it saying? Now, let's bore into it a little further. I hope... Okay, so... To all of you who may be seven-day creationists, we have to think about the fact that the word day is used very differently in the first two chapters of Genesis. It is used in a variety of ways, as he's pointed out. It is used as a span of hours. It is used repeatedly as there was evening and there was morning, the first day, the second day, those marking periods of time. that we experience on earth, right? The sun rises, the sun sets, the sun rises, the sun sets, the sun rises, the sun sets. You could use the same motif that I just used. The sun rises, the sun sets. That's what it means. Day after day after day. But then again, as he just pointed out in Genesis 2, in, on the day when, in the day when, Well, in the days when I lived in Africa, well, that doesn't give you a specific day. That's not a Wednesday or a Thursday. That's a period of time. Again, similar to his example there. So what does this tell us? This tells us that the story might not actually be as concerned with the literalness of the days of the 24-hour periods because it might not actually be doing science it might not be investigating it like we would investigate it now. Because those who wrote it weren't scientists. And we need to have a Christian worldview about this. Because matter, the physical world, I'm knocking on my desk, matter, it's not the only thing that matters. And the coming about of the matter is not the main issue we have here. The main issue we have here, the one that goes beyond that, quite literally, is that we believe that God created, it was through his words and through Jesus that the world was made. That's pretty wild to our modern world. So then to, again, I'm going to come back to it. Again, as Peterson's pointed out to us, to confine the debate to We'll know it happened in six literal 24-hour days. That's what's important about Genesis. Is, I believe, you can take that view if you want to, but to say that that is the point in Genesis 1 and 2 is an exercise in missing the point. And it is to collapse of a, a more complex view of the literary scriptures, to physical concordism, to say that what matters about 
the truthfulness of the biblical word is the fact that it coheres to the physical realities. Well, you don't believe that anyway, because you believe in miracles. You believe that Christ's body doesn't cohere to physical realities. Again, we're taking let's go back to the resurrection real quick. Christ died and was raised again, and we believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus. It's essential to Christian doctrine. And we believe that we will be resurrected when we die. By the way, that's why Christian burials for so long in the church were such an important thing, because we honor the body. So we believe in a physical resurrection of Jesus, and we believe in a body of Jesus that doesn't comport to the physical realities of the world after his resurrection, because he walks through walls. But yet he still has his scars. So what is the Bible trying to say? Well, that's not how the physical world works all the time. No, it's not. We believe that God made the sun stand still. We believe that God created, that God made, that there is a beginning point, as he said earlier, to the creation. That's important. That's Christian. And again, to confine the, the biblical realities to only speaking about the material world to only telling us about how the matter came to be is to miss the point. Because then you're just being, you're not being a Christian at that moment. Because you, by your own confessions, believe in something outside of matter, and something that created the matter, and something that is interested in us human beings. Is something that is interested in the body, and something that, and someone that came in a body. As we talked about a couple weeks ago on the podcast, as someone that appears in very physical ways. So let us not be so reductionistic to believe that the first few chapters of the Bible are merely trying to tell us about how the physical world came to be. Not to bore you, but I nearly finished. <laughs> Hebrew has got a definite article, ha, the, hayom, the day. It has got no indefinite article. If you read the English translation in your Bible, I suspect it goes something like this. And there was evening and morning the first day, yes? Yes, but the the isn't there. But it is there for day six and day seven. Now, if this were a sequence of days, all of which are exactly the same, you'd expect it either to be anarthrous, that is, without the article, or all with the article, ha, but it's not quite. Mm. The two days at the end have ha on them, the sixth and the seventh. And of course we could argue why that is so. There are possible explanations, they are very special. Creation of human beings and God resting. But you see, there again, that begins to open up all sorts of conceptual possibilities. Like this one, for you to think about. 
What could it, is it possible, and you can see I'm expressing this very tentatively because I see various machine guns being pulled out in the audience. Um, very tentatively, ladies and gentlemen, could it just be that these are what they say they are? Creation days. It doesn't take God long to speak, I presume. And then all that is implied in that word, that speaking, happens. How long it took to happen doesn't say. Mm. And then he speaks again. When does he speak again? Well, presumably day two follows day one. But how long after day one? The text doesn't say. Mm. So I wouldn't say either. Mm. Could take a very long time for the various levels of complexity that are fed in from outside. And by the way, ladies and gentlemen, you notice this is the exact opposite of macroevolution. Mm. This is God speaking. And putting in each new level of complexity. Don't confuse this at all. And you can read my book when it comes out if you want to know more about what I believe about evolutionary theories. But just I'm just responding to scripture. I ask myself again and again, suppose I knew no science. What could I legitimately deduce from scripture? Notice how people's logic works. They tend to say, oh, either these days are metaphorical for long periods of time, or else they're the days of one earth week. But whoever said they were the days of a single earth week? Oh, because it says in the law, ah, but that might be just going too far. And then finally, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. On which day was that? Oh, you say day one, was it? How would you prove that? You see, there are assumptions that are sneaking in. And you know, when I sit on aircraft traveling around the world, it has often happened, somebody says, you're a scientist and you believe the Bible. Do you know, do you really believe that ridiculous story with which the Bible begins? Well, I always take out a Bible, you see, <laughs> and ask them to read it to me. It's wonderful watching some of these people sitting on a plane reading Genesis 1. <laughs> And, I, and then I say to them, now, how silly is this story? And I don't tell them what I believe. I simply ask them questions on the logic of the text. Hmm. I've never met anybody yet that doesn't take it seriously. Not one. And that I find very interesting. So, ladies and gentlemen, ah, but you'll say, my goodness me, aren't you primitive? Haven't you heard of Albert Einstein? Because he told us that time was relative. What is a day? And now come the complications. And I want to mention just two, if I may. <laughs> because I'm going to get this thrown at me anyway. <laughs> oh, but now, John, come on, you see. Doesn't Genesis say the sun was created on day which was it? Third day. Well, now, ladies and gentlemen, there are a number of possibilities, aren't there? Suppose we assume the sun was created in the first day. Then what are the first two days? Because, you see, our concept of day, as the very first mention of it points out, has to do with the light system. So are you going to postulate another light with respect to which the earth was rotating? But how long did it rotate for? Now you've lost all grasp on the nations of the, of the nature of the days for a start. 
So you might have to revert to some more subtle notions. Now, perhaps this is being described by an observer on earth as it seems to indicate the Spirit of God was hovering above the waters. And there was a cloud cover and you could see the alternation of light and day, but you wouldn't see the sun. Ah. And then people say, well, mm. yes, but you see, what about all this death? Mm -hmm. and that's a serious question, ladies and gentlemen. And I believe all that scripture says about it. As by one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death passed upon all what? Life. What's the next word? Sorry? All men, yes. The assertion of scripture, ladies and gentlemen, as I understand Paul is being utterly precise. Human death came through sin. Hmm. But what about plant death? Did that all come through sin? The mechanism, and my friend Woody the woodpecker that comes into my garden regularly, that colossal tapping mechanism, you know, if we had one in our necks like that, it would be utterly incredible. You know, our heads would fall off if we tried to do what Woody woodpecker does. That's all to pick ants out of a tree. Do you think that was all created after the fall? Well, then it seems to me you're postulating a lot more creation. Right. Hmm. There are difficulties in all directions. But let me just say this. I believe with all my heart that Paul's diagnosis of human death is right. And now we have to distinguish a whole lot of things that are different. One is this, the age of the universe. Two is the age of the earth. And three is the age of humanity. They're not all the same question, folks. So I'm going to stop there and run. Goodbye. Okay. i gotta re I got to replay that last bit. We have to distinguish a whole lot of things that are different. One is this, the age of the universe. Two is the age of the earth. And three is the age of humanity. They're not all the same question, folks. But everybody, not everybody, a lot of people treat them as if they are the same question. So next time you're in a debate with another Christian, hopefully with no other non-Christians around, talking about what does it mean to believe in the days of Genesis, you can ask them this question. Well, which, what, what age are we talking about? How long has this been around? Are we talking about the universe? Are we talking about Earth? Are we talking about human beings? Because those are different things. I want to go back to something you said about time. They're very special. Creation of human beings and God resting. But you see, there again, that begins to open up all sorts of conceptual possibilities. Like this one, for you to think about. What could it, is it possible, and you can see I'm expressing this very tentatively because I see various machine guns being pulled out in the audience. Um, very tentatively, ladies and gentlemen, could it just be that these are what they say they are? Creation days. It doesn't take God long to speak, I presume. And then all that is implied in that word, that speaking, happens. How long it took to happen doesn't say. And then he speaks again. When does he speak again? Well, presumably day two follows day one. But how long after day one? The text doesn't say. 
So I wouldn't say either. Mm. Could take a very long time for the various levels of complexity that are fed in from outside. And by the way, ladies and gentlemen, you notice this is the exact opposite of macroevolution. I want to take some time to talk about time. So what John just said about the about the time between the days in creation, because many people, I'm speaking of those in the twenty. 24-hour day, seven, six-day creationist are confining God to 24-hour days, which he already talked about how that might not actually be what the text is saying because of the way that the word day is used, which he just explains more about. So let's let's hear a little bit of what Lewis has to say in Mere Christianity on the conception of time. This is Time and Beyond Time, chapter 3, book 4, Mere Christianity. He says, it is a very silly idea that in reading a book, you must never skip. All sensible people skip freely when they come to a chapter, which they find is going to be no use to them. In this chapter, I'm going to talk about something which may be helpful to some readers, but which may seem to others merely an unnecessary complication. If you're one of the second sort of readers, then I advise you not to bother about this chapter at all, but to turn to the next. And I would say the same thing about this series. If this series is of no concern to you and of no interest to you, there's no need for you to watch it. In the last chapter, I had to touch on the subject of prayer, and while that is still fresh in your mind and on my own, I should like to deal with a difficulty that people find about the whole idea of prayer. A man who put it to me by saying, I can believe in God all right, but what I cannot swallow is the idea of him attending to several hundred million human beings who are all addressing him at the same moment. And I have found that quite a lot of people feel this. Now, the first thing to notice is that the whole setting of it comes in the words at the same moment. Most of us imagine God attending to any number of applicants if only they come one by one, and he had an endless time to do so. So what in really at the back of this difficulty is the idea of having God to fit too many things into one moment of time. While that is, of course, what happens to us, our life comes to us moment by moment. One moment disappears before the next comes along, and there is room for very little in each. That is what time is like. And of course, you and I take it for granted that this time series, this arrangement of past, present, and future is not simply the way life comes to us, but the way all things really exist. We tend to assume that the whole universe and God himself are always moving on from past to future just as we do. But many learned men do not agree with that. It was the theologians who first started the idea that some things are not in time at all. Later, the philosophers took it over, and now some of the scientists are doing the same. Almost certainly, God is not in time. His life does not consist of moments following one another. If a million people are praying to him at 10.30 tonight, he need not listen to them all at one little snippet, which we call 10.30. 10.30 and every other moment from the beginning of the world is always the present for him. If you like to put it another way, he has all eternity in which to listen to the split second of prayer put up by a pilot as his plane crashes in flames. This is difficult, I know. Let me try giving something not the same, but a bit like it. Suppose I'm writing a novel. I write, Mary lay down her work. At the next moment came a knock at the door. For Mary, 
who has lived in the imaginary time of my story, there is no interval between putting down the work and hearing the knock. But I, who am Mary's maker, do not live in that imaginary time at all. Between writing the first half of the sentence and the second, I might sit down for three hours and think steadily about Mary. I could think about Mary as if she were the only character in the book for as long as I pleased, and the hours I spent in doing so would not appear in Mary's time, the time inside the story, at all. And there was evening and there was morning, the first day. And there was evening and there was morning, the second day. Well, that's the time that's given to us. What about time, quote-unquote, as it is to God? This is not a perfect illustration, of course, but it may give just a glimpse of what I believe to be true. God is not hurried along in the time stream of the universe any more than an author is hurried along in the imagination time of his own novel. He has infinite attention to spare for each one of us. He does not have to deal with us in the mass. You are as much alone with him as if you were the only being he had ever created. When Christ died, he died for you individually just as much as you had been the only man in the world. The way in which my illustrations break down is this, and the author gets out of time series of the novel only to be going in another time series, the real one. But God, I believe, does not live in time series at all. His life is not dribbled out moment by moment like ours. With him it is, so to speak, still 1920 and already 1960, for his life is himself. If you picture time as a straight line along which you have to travel, then you must picture God as the whole page on which the line is drawn. We come to the parts of the line one by one. We have to leave A before going to get B, before we get to B, and cannot reach C until we leave B behind. God, from above all or outside or all around, contains the whole line and sees it all. So what does this mean for the time that God created? If God can attend to us all at 10.30 for as long as he pleases, what does that mean for the time between times that we are given in Genesis, as John Lennox has just pointed out to us? What does this mean for the time span of the coming about of the material world as created by a non-material being, as created by someone outside of time and matter, as someone who starts the universe, as someone who starts time, as someone who starts space? This is the Christian worldview. This is the Christian confession about the creation, about the eternality of God. This is why... God eternal is so important to us. This is why the Trinity is eternal to Christian beings. This is why to Christian belief. This is why this is why we condemned Arian and the Nicene Council because he said there was a time when the sun was not and we said no 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 at all times there was the sun. At all times there was the Spirit. At all times there was the Father. They exist outside of time. So what does this mean for the time between times, for the time between days, for the time between the evening and the morning, the first day and the second day? What does this mean for the time span that seems to end at the seventh day? 
for the creating that stops on day seven? What does this mean for our view of the stories in Genesis? Does this mean they are just talking about the coming about of the physical world, or are they telling us more things about God, about ourselves? Is the sequence saying something to us about what matters in the story? I would argue, as Lennox has been pointing out to us, and as Peterson has argued, that it is not just telling us something about the physical world, and that is not the whole point of the story. Yes, I believe that the physical world was created by God, by Yahweh. Yes, I believe that matter has a starting point. But how all of that came about and the time span of that, I do not speak on, and I do not know. And I want to have the humility to say that. And I want to have the humility to argue and to respectfully disagree and to have charity and faith and community with those who would take a different view. But I would challenge you, and I would challenge you, that if you believe in a literal seven-day creation, I would just ask you, what do you think of what John has said? What do you think of what Peterson has said? What do you think of what Lewis has said in regards to time and God's relationship to it, or God's non-relationship to it, to be more precise? What do we do with these things? And what does it mean to have a truly Christian worldview? What does it mean to believe that matter is not the only thing that matters? This has been a strange experience making this video. I don't know how much editing I'm going to do to it. This will get posted fairly soon after I record it. I would love to know your thoughts in the comments. You can email me at the Belfast Podcast at gmail.com if you would like to. Please click subscribe if you find this interesting. There will be more content coming about. I have more videos to go over, more people that change my mind about Genesis. And this has been a hodgepodge of a couple of things. I just planned on originally only doing this video on John Lennox, but I had to talk about the Peterson clip. And I might talk about it more later. But I think that's all I have time for unintended. I think I will leave this here. Let us think about it. If you've made it this far, I thank you very much for watching. And I hope this has been edifying and fruitful and challenging and life-giving. I hope it sets some of you free, and I hope to give us a better Christian worldview. For those who have ears, let them hear. Thank you.